This morning we read from Mark 8:27 to 9:1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, "Who do people say that I am?" And they told him, "John the Baptist." And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, "But who do you say that I am?" Peter answered him, "You are the Christ." And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. and after 3 days rise again and he said this plainly and peter took him aside and began to rebuke him but turning and seeing his disciples he rebuked peter and said get behind me satan for you are not setting your mind on the things of god but on the things of man and calling the crowd to him with his disciples he said to them If any one would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels and he said to them truly i say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of god until after it has come with power good morning What is the normal Christian life? If you're walking with God, what should we expect our lives to be like? What does God offer us if we follow him? What does he expect of us? I think there's a lot of confusion among Christians about this. I think many of us when we came to Christ, we came to Christ with this message ringing in our ears which is God has a wonderful plan for your life. He does. But it's not necessarily what we think of. <laughs> Or we hear God loves you and make your will make your life better, we think. And we often hear from TV preachers and others that God wants to bless you. If you just have enough faith, he'll give you health, he'll give you wealth. He will definitely make your life better if you have enough faith. And then in our longings of our heart, we we were created for heaven. So all these things kind of come together for us so that we expect because God loves us that our lives will go well. We expect God to control the events in our lives in a way that makes life easier, not harder. After all, we've all memorized Romans 8:28, right? And God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And so we naturally assume the good means life will go easier. What we are forgetting is that in Romans 8:28, what 
what it's actually saying is it says the good is Christ's likeness. It says to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. You see, the good is being made like Christ. And how does that happen? <laughs> See, what Romans 8.28 actually promises is suffering. Going through the fire, because that's the only way we get transformed into Christ-likeness. We have to go through the fire. We have to be chiseled so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ, to be shaped and molded and chiseled. But as Christians, we kind of know that, but we feel a tension in life. We want life here to go well, and we feel cheated somehow when a loving God doesn't give us a better life. Well, our passage today, the disciples finally have reached that point of where they've understood that Jesus really is Messiah. But when he finally begins to explain what that means, what it means that he is Messiah, they don't get it. <laughs> you see, they're so convinced that God has come, the Messiah would come to make their lives better, that they just can't get it when he says, no, I came for a different reason and for a different path. We're all like them in so many ways. Blind, we, we see that Jesus is Messiah, perhaps, but we don't understand what kind of Messiah Heavenly Father, as we look together and we identify with the disciples in this passage and their confusion, may you give us a vision of what it means to see you clearly and to follow you where you go. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage, Jesus says, who do you say I am? First of all, in these first few verses, we see that they get it. They finally understand he really is Messiah. And as Art said, this really is the turning point of the book. It's the midpoint. Up to this point, Jesus has been making very clear that as he serves and loves and cares for people, he's showing them that he really is the Messiah, the chosen one who was called to come. And now that they understand it in this passage, now he begins to talk about what kind of Messiah, because they don't understand. So we've gone from first half of the book, the servant who rules, to our new banner, the ruler who serves. And I hope you get some time to meditate on this banner. I was looking at it after we put it up this week, a couple days ago, and it brought tears to my eyes just thinking about who Jesus is as the lamb, the cross bearer, the one who suffered for us. So this part of the book, then, it's Jesus revealing that he is a ruler. Yes, he's Messiah, but he's one who came to die. Jesus is heading north with his disciples to the very foot of Mount Hermon. This is Gentile territory. Caesarea Philippi was famous for its worship of Pan, the god, the Greek god, half goat, half man, who was the god of the wild. You can go there today. If you've been there to Caesarea Philippi, you've seen this place where it is. And perhaps even more significant, Caesarea Philippi was known as the place of the newest temple in this Roman Empire, the temple to the Roman emperor himself, 
who had declared himself to be God. And so every Roman citizen had to declare Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God and burn incense and do sacrifices to the Roman Empire emperor. And it was right in this place of alternate deities that Jesus takes his disciples and has them declare who he really is. He asks, who who do people say I am? Say, well, some say John the Baptist, you know, yeah, he was killed by Herod, but maybe he resuscitated somehow and came back to life. Some say Elijah, you know, Elijah was promised in the Old Testament that he would come before Messiah. And after all, Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind into heaven. So he was told, we were told in the Old Testament that he would come back. So maybe Jesus is Elijah. Or maybe he's just a great prophet. He seems to really have a hand of God on him, so maybe he is a prophet. So the popular view was that Jesus was somehow a great man, but not Messiah, (laughs) not God himself. What about today? What are the popular views of Jesus today? Well, clearly, most people think, ah, he was a good man. Some would say he's a myth. He didn't even really exist. We hear that. Some would say he's a great moral teacher. Islam would say he is a great prophet, maybe the greatest prophet next to Muhammad. A great philosopher, some say. But as Josh McDowell well put, Jesus doesn't leave us any of those options. Jesus himself declared himself to be God by what he said, to be not only Messiah, but to be God himself. And so Jesus leaves us only with three options. He's either a liar or a lunatic, or he really is God himself, the Son of God. No one would say the things he did unless he was either just lying, so he can't be trusted, or a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis said, on the level of someone who thinks they're a poached egg. Those are C.S. Lewis's words. Just nuts. Or he really is the Son of God who commands our complete obedience and reverence and worship. But to call him a, a good moral teacher or a good man is not simply something Jesus allows us to do. It's not an op- option for us. But that's what people thought, and that's what the disciples say. Yeah, this is, this is what people are saying. And, but then Jesus makes it very pointed. He says, but you, it's emphasized in the Greek, you, who do you say that I am? And Jesus turns and Peter speaks for them all when he says, you are the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christos. In Greek, Christ, the Christ means anointed one. It's, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach, anointed one, the one that was coming. This was a Jewish title, the one who would come to be the king, the ruler of the nation of Israel, the promised king, the one who would come to save Israel from their enemies and certainly from Rome itself. You have to realize that this is a huge declaration that Peter makes. Here he is in Gentile Herod's territory in Caesarea Philippi. And as he says, you are the Christ, that is an act of betrayal to Rome because it's saying you're the Christ, not the emperor. 
He speaks this huge truth that Jesus has been trying to get through to the disciples. Up to this point in the book of Mark, the first eight chapters, no one has declared Jesus as Messiah except God himself in chapter 1. This is my beloved son. And the demons, as Jesus was casting out demons three different times, they say, you're God's son, you're the son of David, you're the Messiah. But now, finally, for the first time, man speaks it. You are the Messiah. This is huge. This is what Jesus has been trying to get them to believe. So notice how Jesus responds. All right, you finally get it. Now let's form a company. Let's get an army together and let's throw out the Romans, guys. (laughs) No, he doesn't. He says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. I don't want anybody to know. Strongly exhorted them. What's he, what's he doing here? Why doesn't he say, well, you know, I want everybody to know this. I want everybody to know I'm Messiah. Well, two reasons, I think. One is the popular view of who Messiah was, was that he would raise an army. He would be a general. He would throw out the Romans. He would gather all the forces of Israel together. And he would work miracles for the sake of the people and to kill all their enemies. That was the popular view of who Messiah was. And he didn't want people trying to make that happen. But secondly, I think he says, don't tell anyone, because now that they know he's Messiah, he knows that they have a wrong view of Messiah. They have the popular view of Messiah. And he is not about to let them spread the news until they really understand who he is, that he is the ruler who serves, who gives up his life for us. So now he begins teaching them that he is not only Messiah, but the kind of Messiah he is, is a suffering Messiah. He began to teach them, it says. He began to teach them. And the next year, two years that he spends with them is all about teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He says, great, you got it. I am Messiah. Now, here's here's what I got ahead of me. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be arrested by the legal authorities who are going to put me to death. And then I'll rise after three days. In other words, Hey, I came as Messiah not to set up a political kingdom, not to raise an army, not to drive out the Romans. I came to suffer and to be on the wrong side of the law, to be treated as a criminal and a traitor and a terrorist and be killed. Now, this understand this had to be mind blowing for the disciples. This was not what they were thinking of. So, Peter, what does he do? He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. (laughs) Now. How do we enter into this? How do we understand that he just declared him to be Messiah and now he's taking him aside to rebuke him? Well, the disciples had the same view as most people in Israel of what Messiah would be like. They were mostly all from northern Galilee. Many were from Bethsaida, the fishing village. But just up the hill, just a few miles from Bethsaida, was Gamla. We don't hear about much about this town of Gamla, but... Some of us have visited it. I have visited it. It's an outpost up on the hills in the mountains. And it was the center 
of the zealots. The zealots were there to raise an army and to try to drive out the Romans any way they could. Jesus had one of the zealots, clearly, Simon the Zealot, on his, one of his disciples, but they had all been trained under this thinking. Northern Galilee was this hotbed of resistance to Rome, this idea that we can't wait for Messiah to come and throw these guys out. This place of Gamla became the center of rebellion. And in fact, we hear about Masada where 900, over 900 Jews killed themselves rather than be taken by the Romans. In Gamla, we're told by Josephus that close to 5,000 committed suicide jumped off a cliff rather than be taken by the Romans when the Romans were battling in A.D. 67 to take Gamla. This was a hotbed. The popular imagination, the popular view of who Messiah was is given in what's called the Psalms of Solomon. They're in the Apocrypha. We don't have them in our Bible, but they were common Jewish writings. And this is what they said. O Lord, raise up their king, the son of David, that he may reign over Israel, thy servant. Gird him with strength that he might shatter unrighteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her to destruction. Wisely, righteously, he shall thrust out sinners from the inheritance. With a rod of iron, he shall break in pieces all their substance. He shall destroy the godless nation with the word of his mouth. At his rebuke, nations shall fall before him. That's the view of Messiah they had. And you may think, well, what about Isaiah 53, a suffering Messiah? And other passages that talk about the Messiah would be suffering. Well, understand that the Jews of Jesus' day did not attribute those passages to Messiah. It didn't fit their view of who Messiah was, so they attributed them to others. They had no idea of a suffering Messiah, and so the idea of what Jesus is saying here is completely mind-blowing. Let me see if I can help you sort of understand what it would feel like to Peter to hear Jesus talking. Imagine Brian Harson being, being hired to be the new coach at BSU. In his first press conference, he stands up and he says, I think we've got a great plan. Great way. Well, what we're going to do is we are going to try to set records this year for turnovers. We are going to give the ball away more times than any team ever has in history. We are going to see how little we can score. If we score by accident, maybe we will. But by and large, we're going to try to let the other team score as many points as they can. And I guarantee you, we will lose every game we play. Now, if Brian Harson came to a press conference saying that, everybody would be aghast, right? They'd be saying, that's not what we hired you for. <laughs> Come on. And somebody would pull him off the podium and say, this guy's on drugs. Something's wrong here. That's exactly the way Peter felt and the disciples that's not the Messiah we hired. We know what Messiah is like. Jesus, he's come to, to be a king and a ruler, not to come and die and suffer. You're wrong, Jesus. You have a wrong view of what you're here for. And so Peter rebukes him. Peter cannot understand or even imagine a Messiah who would come and die and set up a spiritual kingdom through the Holy Spirit. So Peter rebukes a man he just called Messiah. <laughs> Jesus, you're not following the script here. <laughs> you're messing up. Let me tell you what the Messiah is supposed to do. 
because this idea of a suffering Messiah was inconceivable and intolerable. Jesus' response to Peter's words, get behind me, Satan. Why does he say that? He, he's reminded of the temptation earlier when he met with Satan in the wilderness and, and the three temptations that Satan threw at him. All of them were designed to tempt Jesus, and I believe these were really temptations for him, to have all the glory without the cross. And Peter's offering the same thing. Jesus, you can be Messiah without the cross. You can be king without the cross, without suffering. And Jesus' Jesus's response is like it was to Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Don't tempt me. Poor Peter. Someone said in staff meeting this week, his best day became his worst day. <laughs> you see, they don't get it. But now Jesus goes even further that to help them understand that not only is this Messiah that they've understood, he is Messiah, but they don't know what kind of Messiah. Not only do they not understand that, but he's the kind of Messiah that calls us to death. Not only will he die himself, but to follow Jesus means to follow him into death. Verse 34, and he summoned the crowd and his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, I'll give you thrones. We will reign. We'll be in charge. We'll have wealth. We'll feast every day. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> no, that's not what he said. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to follow me, he says, if you want to be a Messiah follower, a Jesus follower, you must live a cross-shaped life. You must be willing to, de to deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Imagine how this just added to the shock of the disciples. <laughs> what are you talking about? They thought following Messiah means victory, power, wealth, joy. But Jesus is trying to help them understand that a wrong view of Messiah leads to a wrong view of discipleship. You need a correct view of Messiah. He's a suffering Messiah to understand what the normal Christian life is really all about. Because it's a life of following Jesus. If you have the wrong view of Jesus, you're going to get it all wrong. So he says, here's what it means to follow me. First, deny yourself. What is denying yourself? It means denying your desires for a higher cause. Submitting your will to his will, not my will, but yours be done. Wesley Hill, who is a celibate Christian, someone who's following Christ, but is, he calls himself a gay Christian. He says, I'd suggest that living with unfulfilled desires, which he has to do as a celibate gay Christian, is not the exception of the human experience, but the rule. Even most of those who are married are, as Thoreau once said, living lives of quiet regret. Maybe they married the wrong person or have the pain of suffering within marriage or feel trapped in their situations and are unable to fulfill a higher sense of calling. The list of unfulfilled desires goes on and on. 
If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. With these words, Jesus issued the marching orders everyone who chooses to become a Christian must accept. Suffering like mine with my same-sex attraction or any other kind of suffering, all of it seen from the vantage point of faith is obedience to Jesus' call for us to join him in his dying and self-denial. Ray Sedman said that denying self is the end of self-reliance. I don't get to run my own life anymore. I'm depending on you, Jesus. But notice how anti-world this is, right? The world around us says, don't deny yourself. Live for yourself. Fulfill all your desires. Whatever you feel must be right. If you want to do it, do it. Let your desires go. Don't, har- don't harness any of them. Sex in our world is just crazy. It's the proper expression of your humanity, according to our world's thinking. There's no way to be fulfilled without living a sexual expressive life. Of course, Jesus, who is the most fulfilled, perfect person who ever lived, never experienced sex. Hmm. Interesting. I find that for myself, denying self comes down to a hundred little choices. A a choice to say, I'm going to put this person above myself. I'm going to choose to park in the furthest parking spot to leave room for those who maybe have a hard time walking and need to be in the closer spot. I'm going to take the second-rate cup of espresso and give the best one to my wife. That may seem trivial, but it's those choices. It's those little choices we make to die to ourselves and put others first. I'm going to choose, even though I've got a lot to do, to sit here and really listen to this person and engage with them and set my agenda and my list aside to really hear from them. I'm going to deny myself. You see, it's all those little choices we make every day that we're either following Jesus or we are following self. So to deny yourself means you set yourself off the throne and put him first. And when we do that, it releases the life of Christ in us. Then secondly, he says, and take up your cross. And in the parallel passages, it's take up your cross daily. Now, let me say here, Sometimes we think taking up your cross and we hear this expression, someone's going through a hard time, they're enduring suffering and they say, yeah, I guess this is just my cross to bear. Well, there is suffering to bear. There is. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here when he says take up your cross. It's not enduring difficult circumstances. Notice it's an active command. Take up your cross. It's something we choose to do. It's not just something you endure. What is it? Well, we need to understand a bit about the cross, I think. The commentator James Edwards says this about the cross. Modern culture is exposed to the symbol of the cross primarily in jewelry or figures of speech, bearing our cross as putting up with an inconvenience or a hardship. How vastly different was the symbol of the cross in the first century? It was an image of extreme repugnance. 
The cross was an instrument of cruelty, of pain, of dehumanization and shame. The cross symbolized hated Roman oppression and was reserved for the lowest social classes. It was the most visible and omnipresent aspect of Rome's terror apparatus, designed especially to punish criminals and quash slave rebellions. To identify with the cross, to take up your cross, was to identify yourself as someone who is rejected by society. It's a horrible instrument of shame and rejection. To live a cross-centered life is to choose to die, to give up your rights, to stop living for the approval of others and to live for the approval of Christ, just like Jesus did. Of course, the greatest passage perhaps that reflects that is Philippians chapter 2, where it says, have this attitude in yourselves. Okay, that's, we're called to the same thing. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. In other words, he didn't hang on to his rights. Denying self, taking up your cross means giving up your rights, not fighting for your rights, not demanding your rights. And then it says, but he humbled, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of sinful man. And so not only did he let go of his rights as God, but he said, I will humble myself and become a human being. And not only a human being, but a slave as a human being. But then it goes on to say, and being made in the likeness of sinful man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. So not only that, but he became on the level of a criminal. He lowered himself not just from God, but to man, to a slave, and then ultimately to being crucified as a criminal. And he says, have this attitude in yourselves, brothers and sisters. That our attitude ought to be downward movement. Dying to ourselves. Giving up our rights, seeking the best for others, not for ourselves. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear this, I think, thanks, Jesus. That's a great calling. That really sounds good. I think I'll uh, I think I'll become a Buddhist. (laughs) You know, there I can just meditate. No demands. Jesus is not a very good salesman, is he? You want to follow me? Here's what you get. No, you know what? He's not a good salesman. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't try to pull people in. God's going to make your life better. He doesn't say that. But he does give us three incentives to end this this section to encourage us to hang in there. Three motivations. First, number one, verse 35, he says this, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. First incentive, the way of the cross is the only way to save your soul. The way of the cross is the only way to save your soul. You want to save your life? You want to ultimately 
save your life, you want to have a life that's whole and complete, made the way God made you to live, the way of the cross is the only way. As he says, trying to protect yourself, trying to take life in your own hands, trying to get your own life will only cause you to, my translation says, lose your life, but the word is really destroy. You will destroy your life if you live a selfish life. The only way to true salvation, rescue from this sinful, broken world and being made like Jesus is the way of the cross. Any other way will destroy your soul. Secondly, verse 36 and 37, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Second incentive is that the way of the cross provides the best profit. (laughs) He uses economic terms here. Hey, it's the best gain for you. He's doing cost-benefit analysis here for you economy business people. He's saying, you know what? Yeah, the best profit is following Jesus because if I choose to be selfish and live for myself, that's all I get is what I grasp here and then I lose everything else. But the best gain, winning my soul, comes by following Jesus. The best bet is to follow him and gain my soul. The other option is eternal punishment. And that's really what it means where it says forfeit your soul. He's talking about eternal punishment. So the way of the cross is the only way to save your soul. Secondly, it's the only way to get the best benefit. And third, the way of the cross is the only way to gain God's approval. Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. When Jesus returns... The only way to gain his approval, to have Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant, is to live the way of the cross here. The option is either we seek the approval of men because we don't want to be shamed by them, and we lose the approval of God, he says, or we choose to face the rejection of people, follow the way of the cross for the approval of God, eternal approval of God. So as we began, what is the normal Christian life? God's going to make your life all better? Mm -mm. It's not an easy road, brothers and sisters. It's a life of self-denial, a life of taking up the cross, a life of giving up your rights, of facing the rejection of the world to live for eternity. Don't listen to the lies and the false theologies that try to tell you differently. That if you just have enough faith, you can have heaven on earth now. That's a lie. It's not what Jesus says. He says heaven is real and it will be perfect and everything you long for will be there. (laughs) But that's heaven. That's not here. So how do we hang in there? How do we do this? How How do we live this way, the way of the cross? Well, number one, we need to remember three things. We need to remember three things. Number one. Jesus went before us. We're simply following in his steps. He went the way of the cross. He led the way. We're simply following our Messiah. He suffered more than we ever will. Secondly, we need to remember that Jesus has given us his spirit to empower us on the way. Not only did Jesus go before us, but he goes with us. 
in the form of the Holy Spirit, he will give us everything we need to continue walking this path, this way of the cross. And then third and finally, I think we need to remember that Jesus has promised us everything our hearts long for. Deep down, what we were created for, it is coming. It will be fulfilled in heaven. We have all his great promises to help us die to self now, knowing that we will live forever in an ecstasy far beyond anything we can imagine in eternity with him. So may we be people who live the normal Christian life, (laughs) walking in Jesus' steps, being willing to die to self so that the life of Christ might be released in this world that needs desperately to see him. Let's pray. Lord, we have to admit that this is not what we would want to sign up for. (laughs) A life of denying self, a life of taking up our cross daily. But thank you, Lord, that you went before us and you showed us this is the path of Messiah. This is the path you walked and this is the path we walk as we seek to walk in your footprints. Lord, may we find strength in you in the power of the Spirit to deny ourselves so that your life might live through us, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.